there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I had forgotten about the giant toilet. I cannot believe. I, I am so angry with myself. To put it mildly, it is unlike me to have forgotten about the giant toilet. Did you forget? Let me remind you about the giant, about the 30-foot high toilet on stage from which, through which, the Jacksonville, Florida rap rock band Limp Biscuit would emerge to begin every show, like climbing out of the lid of this toilet. The toilet is painted, presumably, to look used, to look stained, to look befouled. The toilet is super gross, and Limp Biscuit would climb out of this gnarly, gargantuan toilet to presumably applause and take the stage, whereupon, having emerged from the 30-foot toilet, the boys would then perform a song called Pollution. I never That is the voice, of course, of your friend and mine, Fred Durst, frontman, Limp Biscuit. Fred likes both kinds of music, rap and rock. This occurred, the mega toilet did, during Limp Biscuit's infamous stint on the main stage of the 1998 version of Ozfest. The traveling hard rock and heavy metal Bacchanal first launched by Ozzy Osbourne in 1996 after Lollapalooza rejected him. The thought process behind the Limp Biscuit mega toilet, such as it was, was that Ozfest audiences in turn might reject Limp Biscuit. Ozfest in 98, you got Ozzy, of course, you got Tool, you got Megadeth, you got Soulfly, you got Motorhead, System of a Down, and the Melvins on the second stage. You got a healthy overview of the past, present, and future of serious heavy metal dudes. That's a rad lineup, honestly. And here come these rap rock clowns from Jacksonville, Florida. Are these guys joking? Are they posers? Are they corn ripoffs or what? Turn down the volume, Limp Biscuit. I do greatly enjoy photos of Fred Durst atop the mega toilet, holding court, as it were. Though depending on the camera angle or the photographer's distance from the stage, it can look like a regular toilet with a Fred Durst action figure posed on the lid. Like somebody just went ding and positioned him there. Just so, like, remember the starting lineup action figures of pro athletes, very popular at this time. I have Barry Zito from the Oakland A's here in my office still for sentimental reasons. Anyway, the mega toilet. As Fred would explain to Rolling Stone the following year, was a message to Limp Bizkit's myriad haters. Specifically, Fred said, quote, everybody was saying Limp Bizkit is shit. So we said, okay, we'll be shit. We'll make a gigantic toilet and come out of it like five turds. We got their attention. They were watching the show and they were buying the records. You got to do that sometimes, man. End quote. Turn down the vocal, Limp Biscuit. And when they tell me to turn down the vocal, I'm going to bring that beat back. And when they tell us to shut the fuck up, 
Nevertheless, they persisted. Limp Bizkit's debut album, $3 Bill, y'all, was released in 1997 and featured such punishing jams as Pollution and Stinkfinger and Leech and Clunk. Ah, yes, and also Faith, an extra uncouth cover of George Michael's 1987 smash hit, Faith. Starting in the mid-90s, well into the 2000s, amongst rap rock bands, new metal bands, whatever you call them, whatever they call themselves, it was a popular scheme when first courting mainstream attention to cover some 80s pop chestnut, to disrespect some 80s pop chestnut often, it seemed, to desecrate it. Marilyn Manson did Sweet Dreams Are Made of This by the Eurythmics, very spooky, very subversive. Corn did Word Up by Cameo. Fear Factory did Cars by Gary Newman. That was dope, actually. Orgy did Blue Monday by New Order. My junior year of college in 1999, our big spring concert was Orgy opening for Sugar Ray. I covered it for the student newspaper. I used the F word twice in the lead. A couple years later, Alien Ant Farm did Smooth Criminal by Michael Jackson. Most of those covers feel semi-respectful actually, but not Limb Biscuit doing Faith. This is my vote for the all-time cover song that most viscerally despises the original. And the feeling most likely is mutual. Limp Biscuit covered George Michael the way Attila the Hun covered Europe. Limp Biscuit's version of Faith, very much by design, sounds like five turds emerging from George Michael's jukebox. Oh. I do dig the rubbery bass line on the buildup here. I remember hearing this for the first time on the radio or whatever and going, uh-oh, this doesn't sound like George Michael's original version of Faith. I don't even know if I'm being sarcastic. I was an extraordinarily stupid 19-year-old person in 1997. You can find on the internet Fred Durst's isolated vocals for Faith. And you don't need me to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Don't do that. When Fred Durst says, bring that beat back, it's for your own good. And for that matter, it's for his own good. In effect, he's saying, bring back my special weighted blanket. He needs the beat more than the beat needs him. Isolated vocals. Don't do that to yourself. Don't do anything. Actually, your only job, dear listener in this moment before the beat drops is to get in the pit, mother fucker. A star is born. Fred, why are you so mad? Let me put it another way. I say that shit, just clowning dog. Come on, how fucked up is you? You got some issues, Fred. I think you need some counseling to help your ass from bouncing off the walls when you get down some. It's 1997, and Limp Biscuit are about to be huge. Rage, the band, of course, but also the noun, verb, and state of mind. Rage is about to be huge. Angry white men are about to be huge. 
Again, not again, still. Angry white men are about to be still huge. Let's dispense with this notion that Limp Biscuit represents some sort of revolution, some vanguard, some apotheosis of angry white men. Puff Daddy did not invent the remix. Justin Timberlake did not bring sexy back. And Fred Durst did not invent the concept of breaking stuff. Everyone calm down. Limp Biscuit, so much to answer for. But what precisely should they answer for? Who are these clouds? Are they the symptom? Are they the disease? Are they the cure? They're not the cure. What do they want? And what did they really do? Let's try and figure this out. Helpfully, one thing we know for sure is why they did it. That was super corny. I apologize. My name is Rob Harvilla. This is 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. And this week we are discussing Nookie by Limp Biscuit. That's B-I-Z-K-I-T. Nookie was the lead single in the band's second album, 1999's Significant Other. This week, my colleagues at The Ringer are proud to bring you the premiere of the HBO documentary Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage, about one of the most disastrous music festivals in American history. The movie's quite good. Of course, I would say that, but I'm not just saying that. And it's quite bleak. And Limp Biscuit, who, of course, performed at Woodstock 99, feature heavily in the film as the villains, allegedly, according to some people, in the film. In all fairness, Limp Biscuit did encourage you the listener, frequently to blame them for shit. So let's indulge them. What shall we blame on Limp Biscuit? Nookie is the real Y2K crisis. A while back, I described I Want It That Way by the Backstreet Boys as the end credits of the 90s. Nookie is the surprise after credits movie scene where the aliens from Independence Day come back and blow up the White House again and then pee on it from space. Nookie ushers us to the doorstep of the 21st century and heavily implies that human civilization will not make it to the 22nd, 1999. Man, it's just one of those years where you don't want to wake up. Everything is fucked. Everybody sucks. Right off the rip, I'm here to tell you that 1994 was one of those years also. You want to build up? Here's a build up. Corn are a new metal band from Los Angeles. Their self titled debut album, that's K O R N, by the way, this is an audio only medium, and I'm trying to be thorough, came out in 94. First song's called Blind, the first great new metal band. Somebody told me once that the beauty of rock and roll is that you could spell, you could style rock and roll however you wanted. Rock and roll, rock apostrophe N, apostrophe roll, rock capital N, roll, rock ampersand, roll, the freedom to style rock and roll how you want is what makes it rock and roll. Words to live by. However, canonically, new metal must be styled N-U with an umlaut hyphen metal. The umlaut is non-negotiable. The umlaut is both badass and hilarious. I don't make the rules, but I'm making them anyway because that's rock and roll. No, I was not ready. In 1994, I was an extraordinarily stupid 16-year-old and corn scared the crap out of me. I don't mind telling you. 
Okay, I am embarrassed to tell you that, but I am also, to this day, impressed. I used to sit around all day reading music magazines, right? And I do this incredibly bizarre thing where any press photo of a rock band I'd never heard or heard of before, if the dudes in the band were glowering in this photo or looked at all menacing or even irritable, I would worry that they were a super heavy metal band and I'd be preemptively cowed by how super heavy they were. Honestly, I don't know if I can explain this properly. Even if it was like a power pop band named after a flower or a type of candy, I pictured every rock band I didn't already know as a metal band and I got scared of them in advance. What is wrong with this person? And why is this person cowering under the coffee table when the beat the corns blind finally drops? Seriously, my friend Gene got me into Monster Magnet. The New Jersey stoner rock band Monster Magnet. They thank the guy who gave them dope in the credits to one of their albums. One guy just lists his name and then dope. I think it was the Super Judge album. Anyway, this is mid-90s pre-Space Lord Monster Magnet, if you know that song. But Gene was an early adopter and dug them a lot. And so I dug them a lot. And first of all, don't ask me to explain why Corn's Blind terrified me, but a Monster Magnet song called Negasonic Teenage Warhead was totally okay. That's right. He said supersonic jerk off. That probably explains the appeal. Anyway, Monster Magnet were touring. Monster Magnet had a show in Cleveland. I live near Cleveland. I was so psyched to see Monster Magnet, but I didn't go because they were opening for corn. And I was scared of corn. I was scared of the way corn frontman Jonathan Davis sang the word why. The way he screamed the word why. All anguished and devastated like he was in a horror movie. I'm still too afraid to even let you hear the way Jonathan Davis sings the word why. Some fundamental part of me is still afraid of corn. Is it the bass too? Is it the bass player whose name is Fieldy? Is it Fieldy, the bass player? The five-string detuned bass that sounds like the cables to the suspension bridge you're walking across just snapped that must be it now what is it is it the song on the first corn record called shoots and ladders that shoots spelled s-h-o-o-t-s is it the song called shoots and ladders that's entirely evil sounding nursery rhymes <laughs> Terrifying. Legitimately terrifying. Korn's first album was produced by a guy named Ross Robinson. Korn's first album basically launched the career of a guy named Ross Robinson, a guy accredited now as the godfather of new metal. As a record producer, Ross is a lyrics guy, an emotions guy, an intensity guy, an in-studio violence guy, if that's what it takes to wring those intense emotions out of you. Ross talked to Metal Hammer magazine a few years back, and he put it this way, quote, I always want to know what the song is about and the instruments and voice to permeate what the singer is singing about on a spiritual level and not just on a performance level, end quote. That's a little hoity-toity. How about an anecdote? Ross worked on a bunch of early Korn albums. Here's Ross himself discussing his rapport with Korn frontman Jonathan Davis on another Korn record. Quote, I put the microphone on the floor, put Jonathan on all fours, and stood over his middle part. My hands were on him, on his shoulder muscles, and I told him, sing, and if I feel you holding back, I'm going to fucking hurt you, end quote. 
All right, so the last song in the first Korn album is called Daddy. I am not playing this. Jonathan Davis doesn't talk about this song much, but when he does, he says it's a song about being sexually abused as a child by his babysitter and his parents not believing him when he told them he was being sexually abused. The word why appears often in this song. This song, as you might imagine, is borderline unbearable, and this song ends with Jonathan Davis breaking down and sobbing in the vocal booth, audibly violently sobbing for several minutes. I am not playing any of this. That would be glib in the extreme. You can opt in to that experience. But Ross Robinson is the guy overseeing this experience. And Ross is not glib about this either. He did a Kerrang! podcast with Jonathan Davis in 2019. And Ross remembers it like this. He says, I went to the vocal booth and I said to John, I think I held his arms and looked at him. And I said, you know what to do. And he goes, yeah. And I hit record. I don't need to tell you the downside to this primal scream therapy. I'm going to fucking hurt you sobbing in the vocal booth approach to rock music when you get hypothetically some other shitty producer goading a bunch of shitty dudes and some other shitty band. The first corn record is a terrifying and brutal, but also fantastic album that sets an incredibly dangerous precedent in all grave seriousness. Don't try this at home. Obviously, lots of bands tried it at home. But starting in 94, Corner, the gold standard, and Ross Robinson is the gold standard. He does Slipknot's first record in 1998, a song on the first Deftones record in 1995. That rad album, Roots, from the Brazilian metal band Sepultura in 1996, all brutal, all fantastic. In the year 2000, he produces the Texas post-hardcore sort of emo band At The Drive-In, their album Relationship of Command. That's extra fantastic. Maybe the best rock album of the 2000s. And Ross is still all about flagrant emotional intensity. There's a song on Relationship of Command called Invalid Litter Department. It's about the epidemic of unsolved murders of women in Juarez on the Mexico-US border. Now, we'll never forget this Rolling Stone article about At The Drive-In, and it says... Robinson had them imagine that the kick drum was the heartbeat of all the world's missing mothers. They had defected and been excommunicated and all the pulses were subverted and they made sure that the obituaries showed pictures of smokestacks. And in the article, the drummer for At The Drive-In, Tony Hajar, says... I haven't talked about this, but in that song, Ross brought up my mom. She passed away in 1988, and it was a poignant time. I don't know if I should have gone that far when we were recording. Now, every time we play it, I associate that song with my emotions about her. That's Ross Robinson for you. And yeah, also, in 1997, Ross is the guy who brought you the first Limp Biscuit record. That's from a song called Nobody Loves Me. It's about how nobody loves Fred Durst. It is no great insult to say that there is no equivalent corn or at the drive-in moment of sheer emotional devastation on the first Lint Biscuit record, which, lest we forget, is called $3 Bill, y'all. Quite frankly, it's a great relief to everyone that Fred mostly sticks to complaining about ex-bandmates and ex-girlfriends. It's not a relief to them, of course. So, Fred Durst. Fred Durst is 50 years old right now, which makes me want to break stuff. Fred was born in 1970 in Jacksonville, Florida, which I'm to understand is not a well-regarded part 
of Florida. Jacksonville is the Florida of Florida. Fred actually grows up in North Carolina. He gets really into early rap music in real time. He starts rapping. He graduates from high school, joins the Navy, leaves the Navy, gets married, gets divorced. Now he's 20 years old. He's back in Florida. He's got a young daughter, and he wants to start a rap metal band. Limp Biscuit are not... And this has always been audible somehow, an overnight success. Corn, in fact, are essential to Limp Biscuit getting signed. Fred Durst met them in a tattoo parlor and passed them a demo tape. He was working at this tattoo parlor at the time. Fred was as a tattooist, a bad one. One of Corn's guitarists is named Head. Fred gave Head a corn back tattoo, but it looked more like horn. Prior to this, for Limp Biscuit, there are lean years, there are discarded band members. Fred's got this bonkers story from 1996 about the time the Lip Biscuit tour van flipped over half a dozen times during the drive from Texas to California. The driver fell asleep and nobody died and Fred broke both of his feet. But Fred also decided that this was karma and quote, it was kind of like God flipping the van and quote. And this was a sign that he should take the band even more seriously, which in part entailed replacing the two guitarists who just survived the van crash with the guy they just replaced, a guitarist by the name of Wes Borland. So let's meet the core lineup, the classic lineup, the current lineup, actually, of Limp Biscuit. In a Spin Magazine cover story in 1999, they were all individually asked, where will you be 10 years from now? I find their answers illuminating. Fred Durst, frontman, in 10 years he will be, quote, at between 10 and 20 million units sold. That was a low estimate. Sam Rivers, bassist. In 10 years, he will be, quote, in a big old mansion in the Caribbean. John Otto, drummer. In 10 years, he will be, quote, in two mansions, one in the Caribbean and one in Hawaii. DJ Lethal, DJ, formerly of House of Pain. In 10 years, he will be, quote, making beats. And finally, Wes Borland, guitar. In 10 years, he will be, quote, probably not in the band. <laughs> uh, Wes would, in fact, leave Limp Biscuit in 2001 and then return in 2004. He came back. I wonder why he did it. I have to say I dig Wes Borland's vibe immensely. This is the guy with the black contacts that make his pupils look enormous. This is the guy with the wacky, elaborate stage outfits. Well, sometimes they're elaborate. Wes Borland, confronted with the age-old question, how do I draw attention to myself when I'm performing in front of a 30-foot-tall toilet, came up with the perfect answer, skeleton costume. Wes Borland, to me, I can't think of another guy in a band whose vibe often was so explicitly, I hate this fucking band. I don't mean that like I hate the other guys in this band, like an Oasis or Fleetwood Mac bandmate feud deal. Some part of Wes Borland, to me, seems to find the very notion of Limp Biscuit fundamentally repugnant. I don't know why I say this. He just seems to be operating at a profound emotional remove. Maybe it's the contacts. Anyway, Korn helps these guys get signed, and here comes Ross Robinson, godfather of new metal, to produce their debut album, Don't Make Me Say the Name Again. And Ross Robinson's presence is palpable. There's a volatile, violent, stuck-in-an-elevator quality to $3 bill, y'all. It's about a men screaming at one another in between songs like Stuck, in which Fred Durst screams at his ex-girlfriend. You wanna play that game, bitch? Fred would later semi-apologize for that song 
in Rolling Stone. He says, I was angry at my girlfriend and I let it build up. If you heard what she called me, I understand that two wrongs don't make her right. I was reacting. I didn't think of the consequences. I've learned my lesson. Now I soak everything in and then I respond. And when someone criticizes my lyrics, it makes me think twice. Was I a dick? A homophobe? A chauvinist? No. But I go back to make sure. Not to quarrel with Fred. And you don't need to tell me this either, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Sometimes Fred can, in fact, be a dick, a homophobe, and a chauvinist. Gay slurs, a stage banter, and so forth. But he learned to dial back the chauvinism, or at least refine the chauvinism a little bit. Limbiscuit tours endlessly with corn. $3 bill, y'all, would eventually sell 2 million copies. And in 1999, time for the big time. Time for significant other. Time for magazine covers. Time for Woodstock. Time for true international notoriety. Time for, well, Nookie. Fred's still talking about his ex-girlfriend, but I do love Wes Borland's dorky, jazzy little guitar riff there. Wes asserts himself in delightful ways. Ross Robinson says he turned down the chance to produce Significant Other and seemed to sour on Limp Biscuit overall as they got bigger and brighter and poppier. Ross spent a few years generally publicly lamenting corn ripoff bands and cotton candy music. So Significant Other is produced by Terry Dale, another huge metal guy, Deftones, White Zombie, Pantera, Soundgarden, Stained. Is Significant Other a poppier album? Is this a dreaded sellout situation or did pop music in 1999 just mutate to better accommodate Limp Biscuit? The pre-chorus of Nookie, to my mind, is the catchiest part of the whole song and in some fundamental spiritual way, also the truest. Nookie is a very stupid and extremely delightful song, but what made it pop was that the pop universe embraced it. Radio embraced it. MTV especially embraced it, just as it had embraced faith. If Significant Other sounds a little more like cotton candy, that's just because millions of kids wanted to eat it. This record debuted at number one on the Billboard chart. This record landed Lint Biscuit and Rolling Stone and on the cover of Spin. I'd greatly enjoy Lint Biscuit profiles from this era for the way they're in conversation with each other. In the Spin profile, Fred Durst is dating a talent manager at MTV and the band goes to the Magic Mountain Amusement Park in the San Fernando Valley. Everyone's pissed that they can't jump the line for the roller coasters. And then in the Rolling Stone profile, Fred is dating Carmen Electra, and he has an awkward run-in with his ex-girlfriend who works for MTV while they are both at Skywalker Ranch in Northern California, where the band was invited for a special preview screening of Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. And there aren't enough limo seats for the ride home afterward, and everyone's pissed. And Tori Spelling is a half-empty limo, but she won't give anyone a ride. I realized that that is an astounding physical quantity of the year 1999. That is a toxic, that, that is 40 times your physician's daily recommended dose of 1999. Side effects include acne, whooping cough, night vision, membership in the Green Party, and getting a living La Vida Loca stuck in your head. Is Significant Other 
the album, specifically inexorably tied to the year 1999. At times, Limp Biscuit do sound like a gleefully dystopian future. And at other times, they sound like Jane's Addiction hired House of Pain's DJ. That song is called I'm Broke. It's about how I shouldn't ask Fred Durst for money. At times, new metal doesn't feel all that new and new with an umlaut. I don't mean that ugly. For music lovers, for metal lovers, predisposed to hating new metal, this always struck me more as a branding issue than any sort of aesthetic judgment. Set aside the DJ, and DJ Lethal was an especially thoughtful and adventurous DJ, but most other new metal DJs are quite easily set aside. Set aside the DJs, and most new metal is, just briefly, more popular metal. There's not even as much rapping as you might remember. And lyrically, this wasn't all that much of a departure. Whining about your ex-girlfriends in song, for example, is not an activity exclusive to new metal. And in fact, predates new metal by several decades. Though I will concede that Fred Durst did a truly heroic amount of whining in this regard. That song is called Don't Go Off Wandering. He's whining about his ex-girlfriend. Significant Other also has a song called No Sex. It's power ballad adjacent, and Fred seems to be mad at a lady because all they do is have sex. I don't take Fred to be a sarcastic guy in the slightest, but I'm having a hell of a time plotting that song on any kind of irony, sincerity axis. There is a song called In Together Now, in which Fred Durst, if you can believe this, is handily outwrapped by Method Man. It's the upset of the century. You know what the third most remarkable track on Significant Other is? It's at the very end when MTV VJ Matt Pinfield shows up to whine about the sorry state of modern music. I'm tired of all those lame-ass, team-ass, prefabricated, sorry excuses for singers and musicians who don't even write their own songs. What the world needs now is a musical revolution. See if you can guess the five to ten specific artists Matt Pinfield is thinking of right here in 1999. MTV's Total Request Live, TRL, launched in 98, and soon it felt like teen pop had taken over the whole network. Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera. And on TRL, new metal was a valuable counterbalance. Korn were huge on TRL. Korn's third album, Follow the Leader, came out in 98, the one with Got the Life and Freak on a Leash. That record kicks ass, man. And so by 1999, you've got this turf war. The badass new metal dudes felt compelled to performatively complain about the wimpy boy bands. Eminem, the Slim Shady LP comes out in 99. We got to deal with Eminem calling out teen pop stars by name for the next five years, rhyming Fred Durst with who she gave head to first. Leave it alone. So here we have Matt Pinfield very angrily taking a side while quite diplomatically declining to name any names. We need some rock. We need something that has balls. We need something with substance, depth, something with soul, some edge, some passion, some power. Does Lint Biscuit have substance, per se? Depth? Soul? Forget it. Who cares? I'm so fucking tired of the shit that I'm hearing on the radio. Radio sucks! The same fucking songs over and over again. 
May I remind you that Matt Penfield works for MTV? MTV played the same fucking songs over and over again. That was the whole point. So now Fred Durst has a conundrum. Fred Durst wants to be a pop star. He is a pop star. He wants to be a Master P-type mogul and multimedia sensation. He wants to direct movies. He directed the videos for Faith and Nookie. He would eventually direct movies. They are bad, but he directed them. All of this, though, requires networking, schmoozing, people-pleasing, selling out. Selling out is not going to be a thing for very much longer, but nonetheless, part of Ross Robinson's complaint about Limp Biscuit in this era, commercial peak Limp Biscuit, in other words, is that there's no real difference ambition-wise between Fred Durst and Britney Spears. Both have been thoroughly embraced by the music industry, and both, for the moment at least, are hugging the industry right back. Which brings us to Limp Biscuit getting tapped for Woodstock 99. Metallica, Rage Against the Machine, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Megadeth, Kid Rock, all those dudes played Woodstock 99. But if you know one band that played Woodstock 99, it's Limp Biscuit. Which brings us, after Nookie, of course, to the second most remarkable song on Significant Other. My suggestion is to keep your distance, because right now I'm dangerous. Break Stuff is a very stupid and extremely delightful song. Also... Break Stuff is about getting mad and breaking stuff. Self-explanatory. What's less clear is whether Break Stuff is the cause or the effect. Do I like Break Stuff because it makes me want to break stuff? Or do I like Break Stuff because it articulates my pre-existing desire to break stuff? We're back to the question of whether Lip Biscuit are the symptom or the disease or the cure. Okay, we've eliminated cure. Symptom or disease? We've all felt like shit and been treated like shit. You know what Fred Durst's about to say to those motherfuckers. Maybe you knew before you ever heard him say it. Maybe, not in these exact words, I hope, but maybe you'd already said it yourself. I hope you know I pack a chainsaw. I skin your ass raw. And if my day keeps going this way, I just might break something tonight. In a second, I'm going to leave Limp Biscuit right here. More importantly, I'm going to leave you here before the beat drops because I want to see what you do. Because what I really want to know is, are Lit Biscuit responsible for whatever you do when this beat drops? Are Lit Biscuit responsible for anything anybody breaks during the song, break stuff? That's the Woodstock 99 conundrum. Anyway, the thing about this Woodstock 99 documentary that I'm still chewing over is the idea that Kurt Cobain's death in 1994 was devastating to the emotional development of modern rock as a whole. Nirvana were widely beloved and also broadly inclusive, and Kurt is wearing dresses and shouting out Riot Girl in the raincoats and so forth. Nirvana in particular and grunge overall to some degree is a bigger tent, a more thoughtful and sensitive and welcoming approach to rock and roll. Of course, there is darkness there's rage, there's guitar smashing and bass tossing on stage violence, but more people are invited to this party. Everyone is invited to Nirvana's party. That's the theory. The second part of that theory is when Kurt Cobain dies in 1994, the year the first Korn record comes out. New metal is a major part of what slowly fills 
that vacuum. And for the next five years, angry white men, who are often specifically angry at women, suck up more and more and more of the oxygen and push out more and more people who aren't angry white men. And this culminates in the dipshit rage fest that was Woodstock 99 and the epidemic of sexual assault and violence against women during Woodstock 99. Not to mention the fires, the destruction, the total disregard for private property, and also, to some degree, human life. Break stuff is the moment, roughly midway through this horrific three-day festival, where the 90s break bad, where the 90s break, where the 90s die. That's the final part of the theory. That's the charge leveled against this band and leveled against break stuff and leveled against Nookie and leveled against every knuckleheaded word that ever popped out of Fred Durst's mouth. And even if you don't like the guy one bit, you might still wonder if he's not a little bit of a generational patsy. We all know why Limp Biscuit did it, but is Limp Biscuit really why we did it? Our guest today is Brittany Spanos, staff writer at Rolling Stone. Check out her rad cover story on Billie Eilish. Right now, Brittany is the best. Welcome, Brittany. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Uh, You and I talked a while back about your love for Summer Girls by LFO. And now here we are talking about your love for Nookie by Limp Biscuit, uh, both from 1999. (laughs) But I think some Limp Biscuit fans would argue that these songs are two different warring universes. Uh, so first of all, which song is better, Summer Girls or Nookie? Uh, it's hard because it's like two different moods, right? It's like two very mm-hmm. distinct kind <laughs> of zones that I need to be in. Um, right. And both karaoke classics, both songs, um, I will scream out, even though Summer <laughs> Girls doesn't really warrant the screaming part. But it's, sure. I don't know. I, I would say like I, uh, Summer Girls, I like a lot more as like a song because I listen to it a lot. But the thing is, there are like Limp Biscuit songs that I love probably more than I love Summer Girls. So like in Nookie versus Summer Girls, in that bracket, I'll choose Summer Girls. But I would say, like, I would choose like Roland over Summer Girls. <laughs> I was actually going to ask you if you've ever done Limp Biscuit at karaoke, because you're the only person I know who would even think to attempt that. And I am so <laughs> thrilled to hear that you have done that. And that has gone I'm, well yeah. for you. You have survived Limp Biscuit karaoke. I mean, new battle at karaoke, it should be more common. Like, it's surprising <laughs> to me that more people don't do Normalize a variety new of metal new karaoke. metal karaoke. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what are the Limp Biscuit songs better than than Summer Girls? Just so you got Rollin, of course, Break Stuff. Would you play Break, Break Stuff? Stuff? Yeah, Great. yeah. Um, I love the covers. Like I love the Behind Blue Eyes cover and sure, the yeah. Faith cover. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just like I feel like Break Stuff and Rollin are like those are the top three. I think sort of like. Yeah. Moments. Bittersweet Symphony. Didn't he do like a home sweet home bittersweet symphony? Yeah. Like combo cover, you know, like yeah. a mashup, I guess. He did some great covers. <laughs> 
I, I I believe you were like six or seven years old in 1999 when Nookie came out, right? Yeah. Um, did you hear it immediately? Did you love Limp Biscuit immediately or did you come to them a little Not in later? 99. Like in 99, I was still like very much, I was kind of beginning to form my own music taste. And so I was listening to NSYNC and Backstreet Boys and, and Britney Spears and Christina. Like that was really all I could fathom at that moment in my life. But I got really into Limp Bizkit around the age of like 10, I would say, because okay. that's when my music taste started to shift. Did you understand immediately that Limp Bizkit were like, they styled themselves as being in direct opposition to everything you previously loved? Was that part of the appeal? Yeah. I mean, I was definitely like aware of them as characters in the MTV extended universe, just because they were so present at on TRL and they were present mm-hmm. um, at the VMAs. And there was, you know, I, I do remember that like Fred Durst, Christina, Brittany drama kind of like vaguely happening in the background and not yeah. fully understanding it, but he was like a character in those. Mm-hmm. Like, but um, yeah, like they definitely were so different. That, I mean, that was also why like my taste when it was starting to change was because all my boy bands were breaking up. Like <laughs> all of the pop stars that I loved so much were like completely changing their images and like, I could not fully understand that at the time. So I was like, you know what? I like hard rock now. Like that is my, I'm angsty (laughs) because Justin Timberlake has abandoned the one thing I love in life. That is very devastating. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like Limp Bizkit. um, And that was part of sort of just like Game System of a Down, Good Charlotte, um, Mm -hmm, Lincoln Park, mm -hmm. like all the kind of really popular rock bands at the time. As characters, what role did Fred and Limp Bizkit as a whole play sort of in the TRL extended universe? Were they explicitly villains? Yeah, they were very antagonistic. And the same with like Eminem, where they just kind of were so opposed to the vibe of all of those boy bands and the pop stars because they were so squeaky clean and presented themselves as such and kind of wanted to tarnish that image. Like I felt like Fred Durst really wanted to like tarnish the images of the very like virginal, like mm-hmm. teen girl stars who kind of had this like innocence to them. Um, and so he seemed to kind of oppose that. Yeah. Did you think Limp Biscuit were bad boys or tough guys or like actually dangerous or were they just sort of cuddly? They seem kind of just funny. Yeah, I don't know. And yeah. the same with like Eminem, like there was like such a jokiness to it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like right, there was right. like no, I guess there was like an edge to it, but it was also like they were funny. Like, I don't know. They did like weird. It was like, I could never take them all too seriously. Right. Like, it, there right. was no um, sense of immediate danger. Like if I saw Fred Durst on the street, I would not <laughs> feel threatened at all. Like I would not feel like, oh no, he's like, yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. you know punch me or something like there's like no sure. immediate threat like it's I would, Fred yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah if I like squared up in a second like Fred Durst would go running <laughs> <laughs> I, were your parents like were your teachers aware of Lint Biscuit or like they forbidden or discouraged or illicit in any sense so actually like my dad's a huge metalhead so he's kind of ah. part of me learning about a lot of the bands I started to get into when I was around like 10, 11. And um, so he was like a kind of Metallica era metalhead and like Megadeth and stuff like that. But he also really loved new metal and he loved like System of a Down. We would like listen to Toxicity a lot and we would listen to like all that kind of like newer hard rock that would come out and Limp Bizkit he also really liked. So we would have like the hard rock radio stations and alt rock radio stations on a lot in his car. Yeah. So 
it was very familiar with him. My mom was like fine with it. The only artist she really hated was Eminem. Sure. <laughs> so it was like the only artist that's the one to hate if you're going to hate one. I think. Yeah, I, like I, she just like did not obviously like. There's so many reasons to not like him, and so she just did not vibe with him. Um, sure. But I went to Catholic school, so a lot of music we really couldn't play at dances and stuff like that. And um, I don't remember Limp Bizkit being explicitly banned, but I also don't remember like dancing to Nookie <laughs> or Roland at any like. Sure. Dances in junior high, so they yeah. weren't forbidden. <laughs> they weren't forbidden, but they weren't encouraged necessarily. Yeah. I guess that's interesting about your dad because I was trying to remember if like metal people hated new metal or if there was like a a, a growth period, you know, where they had to get used to it. Like there, if there was an elitism, like a Metallica person would take a while to come around to Limp Biscuit. But for your dad, it was pretty immediate that he was into this. Yeah, he was kind of just like a, a sort of catch-all hard rock. Like, if he liked it, he liked it. Um, sure. He never took it too serious. I mean, because he also, like, he just, like, listened to a lot of different stuff. And obviously, like, Metallica to him was what NSYNC was to me. Like, it's just, like, the band. Like, he, like, only wears Metallica shirts, you know? But he's not elitist right. about it. Like, he doesn't, sure. like, feel a certain way. Like, I know, like, a lot of Rage Against the Machine fans sort of know that, like, that's sort of the precursor to Limp Bizkit. So they like mm -hmm. hate Limp Bizkit that, right. like, for being the product of that. And my dad's like, not very much like that. He just, and if it was like fun and, you know, he liked the silliness of bands like Limp Bizkit a lot. Yeah. Rage Against the Machine themselves seem to take <laughs> Limp Bizkit personally. Uh, were you also into corn? Like you said, like you were a new metal love person corn. in general. Yeah. 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 Love corn. Um, you know, love Deftones. Like it's just mm -hmm, like pretty mm -hmm. much all of it. I'm I'm a big fan. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> as for as for Linton Biscuit and Rolling Stone, like I remember the magazine at the time, like covering them kind of through gritted teeth, right? Like I, yeah. I don't rem I don't remember them on year end lists or anything <laughs> like that. Like has has the magazine's affection for Lint Biscuit or New Metal like increased in retrospect, like over the years? <laughs> I feel like it's like a generational divide. So sure, when sure. um Susie Exposito, my really good friend, was at Rolling Stone with me, we were both huge, huge fans of New Metal yeah. and of like all of that kind of rock that a lot of our colleagues who had been, who had to cover it, like, you know, Brian Hyatt and Rob Sheffield have such like distinct memories of covering Woodstock 99 that are yeah, yeah, traumatizing. Yeah. And so we're just like, <laughs> yeah, that seemed great. Like we love this stuff. And they're like, okay, like, um, yeah. sure. <laughs> like, how does that turned around? But yeah, it was, it's definitely like, I don't know. I think it was also one of those things where like the appeal was much more to older teens at the time. And sure. like, I think there's kind of a coolness that we absorbed from that. Woodstock 99, I can't imagine, made any sort of dent in your consciousness at all in yeah, real time. Yeah, I don't but think yeah. I knew what it was until I was much, like not much older. I would say like a teenager and kind of, you know, interested in music history and was like, yeah. what's this? <laughs> right. It's probably probably better off that way. It's better enjoyed in <laughs> retrospect and having not been there. I, I, I feel bad for your colleagues who were. Uh, so, so what is your read on Fred Durst? Like, is he a great front man because he's hateable or because he's lovable, because he's dangerous, because he's harmless? Like, what is Fred Durst's appeal? I mean, you know, he had a very signature look that obviously has become fraught <laughs> in the years following. I do feel bad, uh -huh. you know, like the red hats are really for Limp Bizkit and now it's That's ruined tough. and yeah, it it's, is. you know, it sucks. But yeah, I mean, it's just kind of from that era of like these like white boys trying to be really tough and none of them came off as tough. Like none of them came <laughs> off as like convincibly edgy right. and 
dangerous. And I think they're all kind of funny to look back on. And I, sure. I think I found them all very funny in that time yeah. because they had such an impact on all the white boys I went to school with who yes. were not edgy at all at my <laughs> Indiana Catholic school, oh, um, but thought they were. And so, wow. That's yeah. tough. so that to me makes it funnier because it's just kind of like, that's not real, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> is, is Fred Durst hot? I find him hot. I okay. think he's hotter now. I don't think he was hot in sure. the early 2000s. I think like, Present-day Fred Durst is attractive. He's aged gracefully in yeah. a very bizarre, unexpected way. I don't think yeah. he would have predicted that he would have aged gracefully, but he, he actually, has like, somehow. Went to his Instagram earlier today because he he like wiped all of it, but he had like a very like sweet sort of Instagram presence, and hmm. it was just like old cars. Like he would just post about old cars constantly. And, you know, it was just, like, very, like, funny. Like, there was, like, no pictures of him on it for the longest. And it was just, like, him, like, posting about old cars that he saw um, just around. <laughs> and it was, like, very, it was very weird, but also kind of strange. and Very wholesome. Yeah. yeah that's just, yeah. just a dad core Instagram account. I, I love it. <laughs> Are you following his movie career at all? A little bit. I actually, like, watched a movie that he was in. Wait. I think he was in, I don't know if he directed it. And it was like a horror movie that I watched like early in the pandemic, like when I was really just in the depths, in the trenches of every streaming service. That's the time to do that. And it was truly awful. And I've seen his eHarmony ads that he's done. His what's now? He's in eHarmony ads? He did like eHarmony ads like a few years ago. And like I remember as a seeing spokesman, as a, as a as client? As a director. As, as a director. As, a, as, as the an visionary, yeah. As an auteur. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's fed. I did, what did you see the movie where he was a cop? I have this memory of you tweeting about him. Like yes, it, Fred yeah, Durst. that was okay. It, yeah. I don't remember if he directed it or anything. He was in it and it was just like truly horrendous. Like it was like one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. Um, but it was so funny. And it was like one of the few movies I didn't like marathon with friends. So I was just like, just like absorbing this chaos alone. Alone, and <laughs> yeah. I was just like, this is not, this is not it. <laughs> I think the last movie directed was The Fanatic, the one where John Travolta is like a, a stalker. Yes, I haven't a, seen that one yet. There, I, I don't recommend that movie either. I've been I, it's told not the, to not watch it. <laughs> it's, an, it's not the worst movie I've ever seen. There's a scene though where the guy that he's stalking is driving in his car with his son and he puts on Limp Biscuit. Like they play... <laughs> And I, the Leonardo DiCaprio meme uh, from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where he's pointing at the TV, like that <laughs> that was me when Lint Biscuit started playing in the Fred Durst movie. But yeah, don't, you, you, can, you can skip that one. I've been also. told repeatedly to not watch it. <laughs> like I've been, like people have been like begging me to not watch it because yes. for the longest time I wanted to watch it so badly. Mm-hmm. And like everyone was just like, please do not put yourself through that pain. Those are good friends. So, you, have, yeah. you, have, you have good friends. How many times have you seen Lint Biscuit live? I've only seen Limp Bizkit once. It was at in 2014 at the Best Buy Theater in the middle Ooh. of Times Square. Yes. Great venue for a chaotic show. It was an insane mosh pit. And I remember at that time I wasn't in, a, I was, you know, I cover pop music and I'm not in a lot of mosh pits. And so it had been a while since I had been in one and it was very fun. And I actually looked at the set list and they did not perform Nookie. Really? They performed everything else, but they did not do Nookie. I was like, I, for some reason, I just like never registered that they just had left out such a big song, but that was left out of the set list, surprisingly. 
Is that a typical thing? Is that, did they sort of set that know. aside? You know, like Radiohead with Creep, I guess would be, yeah. you know, like we're not going to play our biggest song. I feel like it's, I, I've never like heard about sort of like a big thing that they had with Nookie, but yeah, yeah the set list did have Welcome to the Jungle because Axl Rose was in the audience. Oh, wow. Did he get up on stage? No, he they, was just, yeah. I just, I do remember seeing Axl Rose like in the back, just like in his like weird hat and sure. mini chains and like, <laughs> you know, yes. Yes. <laughs> as he's wont to, to wear lately and um, yeah. Fred Durst paid tribute to him and... Well, yeah. That's very sweet. Um, <laughs> when you listen to break stuff, is there yeah. any part of you that actively wants to break stuff? Like, I'm fascinated by this idea of break stuff as like the most riot-inducing song of a, of a generation. Like, does that song make <laughs> you personally more violent? Um, I, no, because I listen to stuff like break stuff and like any sort of hard rock all the same way, which is like kind of just laying on my couch or my bed, sort of solemnly like playing it, you know? Okay. And I'm I just like, like this image. is great. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> so that's kind of my vibe. You're breaking stuff vicariously. They break <laughs> stuff for you. Yes. Yeah. I, I'm like, you know what? It is just one of those days, Mr. Durst. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, are you into their later stuff? Like when's the last time you listened to Gold Cobra, for example? Uh, I like, I don't think I've listened to the last two albums at all like i would say like the 2003 yeah. album is really the the one with like behind blue eyes like that's kind of the right, last right. one i've Results listened to results may vary yes. i think yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um let's see now <laughs> sure <laughs> like <laughs> good for them yeah it's I'm, it's i'm glad you know fred durst found passion in in directing yes yes exactly <laughs> and jazz his little and jazz ja club. What is his jazz thing? I don't know if I fully understand this or think that it's real, I guess. He hosts a jazz night. And I don't know if he owns the club, but it's in LA. And okay. he like hosts a jazz night. I don't know if it's back yet. It's one of my like biggest dreams to <laughs> go to this. Um, because Jeremy Renner and Lady Gaga have sung at it. Wow. Which is very funny to me. Um, that is That is quite a trio. A jazz yeah. trio. To imagine, like just Fred up there with a clarinet or something. That's you yeah, definitely like, need to check that out and tell it me. Seems like what a it's great like. time. It totally <laughs> does. Um, Halsey obviously is making a record with Nine Inch Nails. Like, first of all, who should Fred Durst work with? Should Fred Durst produce like an Ariana Grande oh, record? Uh, yeah, I feel like Fred Durst should like he should do some sort of like guest track on something. Like, I feel like he would be really good on like a little Uzi Vert song or something. Yeah, you know, yeah, like. Yeah. It would just be really fun. Like, I don't know. I would love for him to to do something. And I feel like so many of the sort of like SoundCloud emo rappers have so much stake sure. in new metal too. But I don't know if I want him by the pop girls just yet. Cause I don't know who he would be a good fit with. Right. Maybe like I feel like Rena might be able to do it. I was gonna really say fun. you've written about Rena Sawayama, and that record feels to me like yeah. Nookie and Summer Girls colliding and exploding. Like, are we in for more of that? I hope so. I'm like, I'm so genuinely shocked and excited about the Halsey album that she's kind right. of pivoted to this direction too. And like yeah. the Rena album was kind of like such a refreshing jolt and like so even kind of different than what she had been doing for a while. And so I love that she yeah. kind of went for this like little like tougher kind of new metal sound with a lot of the songs. And of course, yeah. like Poppy went full new metal. Like mm -hmm. now I think she's just like right, stepped right. into it. Um, I would love for more of that. I feel like there's so much 
so many opportunities for that. And I think that's a lot, there's a lot of pop stars, but I think can have a lot of fun, especially for yeah. like early 2000s nostalgia. Like maybe the next Olivia Rodrigo album is like her just like <laughs> realizing we, we love good for you. We love brutal. Like now I'm just gonna, you know, get in West Borland to produce my, <laughs> <laughs> my sophomore album. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure Wes would be into that. He'd wear the contacts, you know, he would just yeah. sit there. Very, yeah, that's, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> uh, it's always great to talk to you, Brittany. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks very much to our special guest this week, Brittany Spanos. Thanks as always to our producers, Isaac Lee and Justin Sales. And thank you very much for listening. And now, without further ado, here we have Lint Biscuit with Nookie. We'll see you next week.